Anne Helen Peterson, Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. Narrated by Alex Vincent and Oliver Maines. If you read the headlines, it's hard to miss. Millennials get a lot of flack. They're lazy, the media says. They're too sensitive. They're whiny. If they can't get mortgages, their fondness for brunch must be to blame. It seems millennials' elders think they're going to usher in the end of the world, like every generation before them. But what if millennials aren't just whiny? What if they're burned out? And what if their collective dissatisfaction is a reasonable reaction to being dealt a bad hand by an unfair world? These are just a few of the questions that these blinks tackle. Drawing on sociology, economics, and current affairs, they lay out an argument in defense of millennials. In the process, they indict society at large. Blink one of six. When you think back on your childhood, what kind of atmosphere do you remember? The answer to this question says a lot about when you were born. For example, do you remember a permissive environment, one where you were free to roam around and entertain yourself? Or were you on a tighter leash, with an adult keeping an eye on you and watching out for any signs of trouble? For millennials, that is, people born between 1981 and 1996, a childhood of the more supervised and restricted variety was much more common. That seemingly insignificant fact can tell us a lot about millennials' troubles today. The key message here is, micromanaged childhoods lay the foundations for millennial burnout. One reason that millennials' childhoods were so tightly controlled was money. That's because rising income inequality in the last decades of the 20th century had a knock-on effect on parenting styles. In a financially uncertain world, many parents grew anxious about their children's future career prospects and began to conceive of childhood in a new way. No longer a carefree period of fun, play, and basic education, the childhood years began to be seen as serious preparation for adult life. So instead of throwing a ball around a vacant lot, millennial children were enrolled in high-stakes group sports. Instead of discovering the arts on their own, kids were shuttled from piano practice to dance class. The focus shifted from enjoyment to accomplishment, and fun took second place to personal improvement. But it wasn't just a question of high expectations and jam-packed schedules. There was also a change in the amount of freedom that children were given in their daily lives. The cause? Fear. In the early 1980s, the mainstream media began to give child abductions unprecedented prominence in news reporting, and parents reacted with alarm. Never mind that there was no actual spike in crimes against children. The attention that child abductions received led to the age of stranger danger and convinced parents that their kids had to be kept on a very short leash. So what happens when a generation of micromanaged children reach adulthood? Well, you get millennials. 
their single-minded focus on productivity and self-improvement originated in hectic and ambitious childhood schedules, and their struggles with adulting reflect the hypervigilant parenting that stifled their self-reliance as kids. Blink 2 of 6 As millennials grew up, left school, and began to head out into the world, many took what seemed the natural next step. College. Lots of millennials saw college as their best option, and they enrolled by the millions. Why wouldn't they, after all? Since childhood, they'd heard teachers, parents, and guidance counselors say that a college education was the key to professional success. For middle-class students, a degree promised continued security. And for the less well-off, it could prove the springboard to wealth. In the minds of many millennials, it seemed like a safe bet. The key message here is, for many millennials, college turned out to be a raw deal. As it turned out, a college education wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. At least, not in the environment millennials faced. For one, with more and more students going to college, a degree just didn't mean what it used to mean. In the past, a bachelor's degree could distinguish a person from the competition, but not anymore. Now, with graduates aplenty to choose from, employers began to pay more attention to where applicants had studied. People who hadn't attended elite colleges often found themselves left out in the cold. So what did they do? Well, in an effort to make their resumes stand out, many pursued graduate degrees. For some, this strategy worked. But lots of millennials with master's degrees and PhDs still struggled to find work. And the additional loans they'd taken out to finance graduate studies just added to their already alarming levels of debt. This situation wasn't inevitable. For one, there are a number of well-paying jobs that don't require a degree, as HVAC installers, electricians, and pipe fitters will tell you. Secondly, the myth of the life-changing degree helped to distort millennials' attitudes toward work. Having spent much of their childhoods chasing prizes, skills, and accomplishments, millennials had absorbed the idea that hard work inevitably leads to success. That meant that when they graduated and struggled to make ends meet, young millennials saw only one solution. Overhaul the system? Demand change? Nope. Millennials decided to work harder. Blink 3 of 6 Throughout history, most people had fairly uninteresting jobs. Miners and seamstresses might have taken pride in their work, of course, but that work was always ultimately a means to an end, a reliable way of obtaining life's necessities. A plowman didn't till the fields because he found the work exciting or glamorous. More likely than not, he did it because his father did it. So if you asked your laboring ancestors whether their work was their passion, they'd probably be completely bewildered. Many of us, millennials in particular, have been sold the idea that work should be our life's focus, fulfilling all our ambitions and giving us a sense of purpose. So a more pragmatic view of work might seem uninspiring. However, it's one from which we can learn. The key message here is, the idea that work should be a passion makes millennials easy to exploit. One of the problems with dream jobs is that lots of people want them. 
After all, many people aspire to become journalists, dancers, and archaeologists, but people who fantasize about becoming factory workers and delivery drivers are few and far between. That means there's stiff competition for these scarce, very desirable jobs. So if you're not happy with your working conditions, there's always someone willing to take your place. Benefits can be cut and freelance rates can be dropped year after year. The attraction of the dream job means that the applications will keep rolling in. Employers know this. In fact, the idea of the passionate employee has proved a blessing for many businesses. Why? Because if employees are self-motivated, then they shouldn't need any extra enticement to work, like decent wages, say, or reasonable benefits. Instead of asking employers to improve their working conditions, employees have been told to look inward and drum up some more enthusiasm. Nowadays, even job listings betray this condescending attitude, calling for coding ninjas and customer service rock stars. If you come across one of these, take a look at exactly what the employer's offering. In general, the cooler the job title, the crappier the work's going to be. This is something millennials are slowly starting to realize. Instead of pursuing a passion at all costs, many millennials are doing something wiser. Like earlier generations, they're opting for secure and well-paid work that pays the bills. Blink four of six. When Kelly girls arrived in the workplace of the 1970s, they were a revelation. Billed as housewives eager to earn some extra pocket money, Kelly girls were, in essence, temps. For employers, they were a godsend. You see, these temporary workers had almost all the advantages of regular employees, with none of the downsides. As one ad proclaimed at the time, you didn't have to pay Kelly girls when they were sick or took holidays, and you certainly didn't have to offer them any benefits. Besides an hourly wage, employers' obligations toward Kelly girls were virtually nil. Sound familiar? If so, it's no wonder. The life of a Kelly girl in the 1970s foreshadowed the working conditions of our modern gig economy. The key message here is, precarious and irregular work keeps job security beyond millennials' reach. The role of freelancers, contractors, and gig employees took on a new significance in the 1980s and 1990s. As politicians removed union protections, employers began to streamline their business models, discarding entire departments and outsourcing their work to freelancers and temps. Bit by bit, many workers' job security was eroded, and a new class arose alongside the traditional working class, the precariat who, like Kelly girls, are often entitled to nothing but their basic pay. This is the situation in which many millennials find themselves, whether as Uber drivers, freelance creatives, or adjunct professors. But things were once very different. In the mid-20th century, companies directly employed the vast majority of the people whose labor they relied on. For employees, that meant benefits, sick pay, and job security, even the chance of advancing up the rungs of the company ladder. At its most basic, this ensured that a degree of financial security was universal, not the preserve of an elite few. 
But for the precariat, those basic provisions have come to seem like luxuries. Until lawmakers force companies to recognize the workers they rely on as bona fide employees, job security and even peace of mind will continue to elude many millennials. Blink 5 of 6 Do you know any of those people who live in the office? The ones who are there before everyone and stay long after everyone else has gone home? These days, it seems like there are more of them than ever. In recent decades, the number of hours we work has been increasing little by little, to the point where things have now reached a crisis. It's not just hard work anymore. It's a culture of overwork, and it's profoundly affecting millennials. That's what makes the playful perks that many firms offer somewhat sad. The ping-pong tables, abundant snacks, and free lunches aren't necessarily signs of a relaxed atmosphere. More often than not, they mean that the line dividing work from play has become hopelessly blurred. They say that the office is no longer somewhere to work, it's become somewhere to live. The key message here is, the modern workplace is hard to leave, and millennials are paying the price. One of the first places that the culture of the live-in office took root was, believe it or not, in banks. As the American anthropologist Karen Ho outlined in her book Liquidated, many of the perks that investment banks offered their employees encouraged them to put in extremely long days at the office. For example, in one workplace, any banker who worked past 7 p.m. could order takeout at the company's expense. And anyone who stayed just two more hours could get a cab home, paid for by the firm. At that stage, of course, a banker might have clocked up a 13- or 14-hour day. But instead of seeming taxing, it seemed natural. Because of the different perks that kicked in as the evening wore on, it actually felt convenient to work an extremely lengthy shift. In fact, for many, it became a point of pride. But this is where the experience of an investment banker diverges from that of your average millennial. What makes bankers unique is that putting in 70-hour weeks can actually make financial sense for them. Why? Because unlike most workers, what bankers earn is tied pretty strongly to the profits they create. For them, long hours can lead to massive bonuses. The story is different for most workers, unfortunately. They get sucked into putting in long days because they feel they have no choice. The workload just seems to demand it. Blink six of six. Given the long, grueling hours that millennials work, you might expect that they spend their precious time off in as relaxing a manner as possible. What would you do in their shoes? Imagine you've just finished a 13-hour shift. You've made it home and your errands are finally done. Tomorrow you start all over again. But now, before you turn in for the night, you have one single hour to spend doing whatever you like. So what do you do? Read a book? Play the piano? Work on your free throw out in the yard? Not if you're like most millennials. Time after time, they reach for their phones. The key message here is, millennials' overuse of technology is gradually wearing them out. We all know the promise of social media, but at this stage, few of us believe it. 
The slogan, keeping people connected, might have sounded convincing a decade ago, but too much has happened in the meantime for that to still sound persuasive. Take Instagram, for example. Once, it seemed a place of refuge for millennials whose embarrassing older relatives were joining Facebook. And at the beginning, looking at cute pictures of friends, pets, and landscapes was fun, even wholesome. But bit by bit, Instagram became a place to showcase experiences and to compare your lifestyle anxiously with those of others. The endless stream of smiles and apparently perfect lives is obviously too good to be true. But nevertheless, looking at these pictures, it's hard to avoid concluding that your own life suffers by comparison. All the same, Instagram isn't uniquely tiring. More exhausting by far is the news. Climate change, violence against women, refugee crises, and mass shootings. Even before the advent of social media, there was plenty in the news that was upsetting. But in our world of immediate Twitter updates, this upsetting content can reach us with unprecedented urgency and haste. We might feel that it's our duty to know what's happening in the world, that what we can't fix, we can at least try to learn about. But the truth is that listening to an onslaught of bad news day after day and year after year isn't doing anyone any favors. In fact, it's wearing us all out. From precarious jobs to towering college debt, millennials have enough on their plates already. The added stress of all the world's bad news is something we can surely do without. You've just listened to our blinks to Can't Even by Anne Helen Peterson. The key message in these blinks is millennials aren't entitled or incompetent. More than anything, they're unfortunate. The victims of misguided parenting, bad advice, foolish policy, and economic caprice. And as if all of that weren't bad enough, they've got overwork, the gig economy, and technological exhaustion to deal with, too. It's no wonder millennial burnout is rampant. Got feedback? We'd love to hear what you think about our content. Just drop an email to remember at Blinkist.com with can't even as the subject line and share your thoughts. 